Welcome to this Burlington Audio Podcast. We hope you will be encouraged and inspired in your faith as you listen to this message. We'd love to hear what you think. Please be in touch with us through the website. More information and many more podcasts are all at burlingtonbaptist.org.uk. Thanks for listening. Amen. Thanks, Jonathan, very much. Indeed, so we're going to continue in our series, The Heart of Reformation, uh, hashtag heart uh, reform. Preaching, just like many forms of communication, is a nightmare. Every time I open my mouth, far too much is going on. It starts, of course, with what I mean to say, but quickly becomes what I actually say, which is followed by what you actually hear, which quickly becomes what you think you actually heard. That alone might be containable if it all stopped there, but then there's what you say about what I said, followed by what I think you've said about what I've said. And maybe that wouldn't be so bad if that only happened once, saying one thing to one person. But imagine if someone said many things to many people, and then repeated that every week. What a nightmare that would turn out to be. Well, actually, sometimes it works in our favor. By the grace of God and the work of the Holy Spirit, sometimes you hear things that I didn't actually say. At the end of the service, you will thank me for something brilliantly insightful that I'm pretty sure I never actually said. I won't tell you that, of course. I'll accept it humbly and with grateful thanks to God. But in the mystery of the communication, somehow you've heard something from him without me altogether. But there are other times... Oh, this is not good. My network's gone already and we're only one minute in. Each week, we're trying some new experiments. I think this one has failed. (laughs) It's not working out, is it? Great. Okay, so um, we're talking about uh, communication. We're talking about how difficult it is. We're talking about the fact sometimes that works in our favor because uh, you actually hear something that I uh, didn't actually say. I might have intended to say it, but uh, uh, I didn't actually say it. But the other times, it works the other way, of course, doesn't it? Sometimes it's more of a nightmare because it doesn't work in our favor and we misunderstand each other. And what I'm particularly concerned about as we get going this morning is whether some of my comments about the Reformation over these last two weeks have been misunderstood or, in fact, whether I've been misleading in some of the things that I've been uh, been saying, even though I've tried Obviously not to be misleading at all. So, to overstate the case is this. I'm concerned that maybe my words have been interpreted some way, somehow along the line, as reinforcing some kind of ancient Protestant-Catholic divide. I'm anxious, again, to overstate the case, that I've given the impression that somehow the Catholic Church 500 years ago was in trouble, and then super churches like Baptists came along and sorted it all out. I want to be very clear that if I've given that impression in particular, 
then uh, I'm absolutely sorry for that. It's not true. It's not what I'm uh, trying to say. Or if in any way, something of what we're talking about here has encouraged us to reinforce some age-old divides that we're seeking to get uh, past. A few things then in that regard. The first is this, that the overarching theme of what I'm trying to communicate in this uh, short series is that churches, and it doesn't matter what flavor, type, denomination, stream, whatever, churches have a tendency over time to lose an aspect of truth that they once held dear. That's why I'm using this um, quote all of the time. The great Christian revolutions came not by the discovery of something that was not known before. They happen when someone takes radically something that was always there. Something that was there gets rediscovered, gets unearthed, gets reapplied, and away you go into a new reality, a new renewal. The Reformation is an example of that, but of course it's not by far the only one. Any kind of church suffers with this reality. In making the statements about the Reformation, I'm not having a go at all at any particular church, but simply what's true of us universally. No one has the whole truth. little voice inside us goes, I do. But no one has the whole truth in the sense that I'm talking about. It would be pig-headed and arrogant of us to say so. Wherever there are human beings, the forces of institutionalization and human tradition get to work on us almost immediately. And truth, great truth, easily gets lost. I criticize my own tribe, the Baptist tribe, probably more than any other tribe because I feel I'm able to, because I'm within it, I'm a product of it, I've loved it, and I've served it, and my family's heritage comes from within it. But it's absolutely true for us as Baptists. Baptists, for example, who prided themselves on getting back to the Bible, were almost, in my opinion, totally overrun by liberal theology at the beginning of the last century, which took us almost a hundred years to recover from. A truth that we'd known so easily got lost in something that was modern and contemporary for the time and so on. You can make the same point about this particular church as well. Some aspects of the history of our church are a little hard, perhaps, for us now to come to terms with. A Baptist movement that championed a rediscovery of the Bible and a commitment to missional zeal ended up building a church, this church, where the servants had cheaper, less comfortable seats Upstairs. Hang on. What kind of church does that? If you look carefully on the outside, there are separate entrances as well. That's apartheid in our own midst, in our own story. Truth that we've once held so easily gets lost. They were blind spots, we might say. And absolutely, let's say they had a blind spot, remembering that if they had a blind spot, so have We, what are our blind spots? So by the way, you're in the rich posh seats downstairs. Double tithe for you guys. Good choice, Frank. Double tithe down here. Little switch underneath for the heated pew. Keep you warm. Uh, 
But it's hard to conceive, isn't it? So, so, so it's universally true that when human beings gather, a level of institutionalization sets in and truth that was once so clear, so obvious, gets lost. Denominationalism? 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 Nationalism? It's not what I want to talk about at all. And more to the point, it's not what I've been talking about the last two weeks. Are you with me? Are you with me? The we are right, you are wrong stuff is a nonsense. Whatever our background, upbringing, domination, persuasion, and all that stuff. When truth that's been forgotten gets rediscovered, great things happen with the people of God. So firstly, every flavor of church has truths from time to time it needs to rediscover. Secondly, I'm not in any way trying to reinforce or promote a tribalism that I've spent the last 20 years trying to break down. Hey, it's about Jesus and Jesus revealed in his word. That's what it's about. That's the deal. That's the marker. Thirdly, let me tell you about one of my most moving spiritual experiences. It happened at the Baptist Assembly, which to be honest was quite a surprise to me as well. And it's a few years ago now, so I'm not really making any judgment on the reformation that's happened within Baptist uh, life and the Baptist assembly in particular. They had controversially invited Cardinal Basil Hume, the Catholic Archbishop of Westminster then, the most senior position in the Catholic Church in England and Wales. He talked about his walk with Jesus, the depth, insight, and richness of his spiritual journey moved me enormously. The intimacy that he had with Jesus was beautiful and transparent and infectious and precious and you just hungered for it. Somehow the presence of Jesus filled that place. You were drawn to him, Jesus I mean. Remember Geraldine Latty getting up afterwards and just bursting in to breathe on me, breath of God, because he was there and you could almost breathe him in. Such was his presence. You see, God is at work outside our institutions, our boxes, our parochialness, our whatever it is. Wherever his word is treasured and Jesus is glorified. So, I'm going to move on. Today then, another truth that's been so easily lost. This one again is observable at the time of the Reformation, but also uh, other times too, including our very own Baptist story. I've called this message a lot more priest than we thought. Human nature, which is everywhere, tends to put special emphasis, or great emphasis, shall we say, on special people and special places. There's nothing new in that. When Jesus was around, there were special people. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the Wobblinies. They were all there, except the Wobblinies. People that you needed to kind of connect and engage with God. And then there weren't just special people, there were special places like the synagogue and most importantly the temple that you needed to connect with God, to to, to somehow interact with him. The church has often reduced its own life to special places and special people. There are special people like priests and elders and ministers and, and special places like churches and cathedrals. More modern streams, of course, say that they're above all of that special people and special place stuff, but they're not. I'm going to that conference. Who's preaching? Hmm. That says more about you, probably, than the preacher. Or, I love it. 
at Soul Survivor because God is there. Hello? We say it, don't we, about buildings. Somehow it feels harder for something to happen in here that we would be quite happy for it to happen ooh, just through the glass door. Because there's a, I think it's the pews that does it, don't you? Sacredness about. And then someone says, let's get rid of the pews, and you go, oh my word, get, oh my word. Don't those pews make it a sacred space? Don't they make it comfy? So we've got all these weird kind of notions, haven't we, of special people and special places. I'm not making this stuff up, I might, it's true. It's, it's human nature. I can't do this story justice, and I'm not sure I'm going to get the details of it right. But I remember um, Carl Brettel sitting in our caravan uh, at one point, telling this story about a church. And um, like our church used to have, remember we used to have railings around here? Was that to keep the minister in or the congregation out? I can't remember. We used to have these railings around here, didn't we? Just protect me. You know, it's like my bouncers feel quite vulnerable, exposed now this morning. And, uh, and there was a big debate in some church. I mean, I don't know what denomination it was, but as soon as we're into it, let's call it Baptist, just to uh, take it on the chin. And, um, and they wanted to remove it all. Uh, there, was, there was kind of a communion table up here somewhere, and then this rail and stuff. And there was a big hoo-ha about removing the rail and stuff. And no one wanted to remove the rail because somehow it made the, the church holy. Somehow the rail did something in our minds because we've got used to it and it's what we know. And so they look back in the history of the church. Why was the rail built there in the first place? The rail was built there in the first place because you brought your dog to church because you didn't know what to do with your dog. And when you came up to the communion table, if you didn't have a rail there for your dog to wee on, he might wee on the communion table. You didn't want that, so you built a rail. So they've now got a rail, which is the dog's urinal, and they're arguing that we keep it to keep the building sacred. Anyone building their, bringing their dogs to church? Uh, no. So maybe the rail could go. So, so we've, got this, we've got this natural bent that moves us towards special people and special places. Advent. Advent. What's all this got to do with Advent? If you've been around churches for a few years, you're looking for the link, aren't you? There must be an Advent link somewhere. It's coming. By the way, our theme for Christmas is joy. I've decided to be joyful this season. And uh, I'm not going to complain about anything. Just going to be happy. If I don't like it, I'm not going to do it. But I'm not going to moan about it, you know. Christian, oh, it's too busy in the shops. And there's too many cards. And it's too many of this. It's too many of that. If you want joy real. See, you know it. No, you're singing it way too joyfully. If you want joy. Okay, so what's this all got to do with Advent? This is what it's got to do with Advent. When Jesus came, he drove a coach and horses through special people and special places. Absolutely. He destroyed the idea of special people and special places. So Joseph, who was he? Oh, he was just a bog-standard carpenter. He wasn't clever enough to be a priest. That's why he was doing his father's trade. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth. There's evidence to suggest that Nazareth was the garbage dump. It was the rubbish place. No wonder they said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Rhetorical question. No, of course not. He belonged to the house of the line of David. Five. He went there to register with Mary. Who's Mary? Mary's a young girl. Not even married yet, so she's seriously young. Women didn't have rights in those days in the way they should have and the way we would expect them to today. So there's this bloke who didn't quite make the grade. He's married to a young girl who's pretty much not a lot in that kind of culture, uh, and they're expecting a baby, and that's a bit awkward because they're not even married. So it's a right pickle. There's nothing special about that. 
While they were there, the first time, the time came for the baby to be born. She gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths. No baby grow. No pampers. Just cloths because they were poor. Dirt poor. Placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. It's not looking good. It's not looking good. Where are the special people? And where are the special places? It's almost comical. It's, a, it's an unbelievable commentary on human nature. And then, as if it's not mad enough, the very next verse says, and then there were some shepherds. <laughs> shepherds. Shepherds, for goodness sake, shepherds. No special people there. They were miserable. They were kind of thieving and dishonest, apparently, and ceremonial unclean and all of that stuff. Right from his birth, Jesus was destroying the idea of special people and special places. So he called 12 weirdos to join his family, just to make the point. He radically included women just to get up everyone else's nose, particularly the men. The types that he mixed with were those types, friends with sinners and tax collectors. The places where he spent his time were those places where others perhaps wouldn't have gone. It was a radical reorientation. And there on a hillside, he invited people to connect with God. And he, and he gave this brilliant outline of prayer. And he said, our Father, anywhere, everywhere. And then on the roadside, there was someone in need. And he'd pray and they'd encounter God right there, right where they were. The ordinary people in the ordinary places, utterly transformed by the presence of God. So to sum up the Jesus ministry, all the special people got so annoyed, they killed him. And some of the not-so-special people, or so they thought, got absolutely included. And it kind of goes on today, doesn't it? If you go to Israel today, and you ask people about their tour of the Holy Land, 99.9% of people will say what? Which bit do they enjoy the most? Take a stab. Galilee. Galilee, that's what they'll say. The ordinary place, just by the lake, for goodness sake. There's something about the ordinariness where Jesus was that became extraordinary, that captures us. Forget about the churches and the cathedrals in that moment. We're captivated by something remarkable that was happening as Jesus met ordinary people in ordinary places right where he was. His earlier followers, though, needed some persuading that everyone needed to be included. You remember uh, the vision that uh, the Holy Spirit gave Peter, who, who thought they were special people, but, but it was only the people like him that were special. Sometimes we get tempted to think like that, don't we? We're the special ones, and then there are the others. And so he gets his vision of all kinds of food, food that he knew wasn't special, food that he knew he shouldn't eat, and the Holy Spirit said to him, look, eat this stuff because it's from me. And he goes, surely not, Lord. I've never eaten anything impure or unclean. The voice spoken to him a second time, do not call anything impure that God has made clean. His early followers needed some persuading. And I love the way the story goes on um, because then Peter goes and he ministers to a Gentile family and they all become Christians. And the people that were with Peter, the special people, were surprised that the Holy Spirit landed on the non-special people. And they kind of went, Goodness me, Holy Spirit's ended up landing on the wrong people, effectively. It says, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. The circumcised believers, the special ones, who had come with Peter, were astonished. 
That's how deep human nature is. They were astonished that the God of all who created every human being in his image should pour out his spirit on someone who was different to them. That's how messed up we get, don't we, sometimes? Astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out, I love the way it says it, even on the Gentiles. It's like even on the Baptists the Holy Spirit came once. Would you believe that? But eventually over time, by the working of the Holy Spirit, this truth gets established and Paul says, look, This is the new community. This is the new way. This is what God's doing. There's neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, male or female, for you're all one in Christ. All the ways that we use to divide us are completely removed away because of the love and power and redemption of Jesus Christ. Isn't that fantastic? Religion, class, race, color, gender, occupation, wealth, all all removed away in the powerful name of Jesus. No More special people. Tradition of church, though, has found it really hard to break away from that. It's true of other traditions, but I'll say it about our Baptist tradition. I I would preach around lots of Baptist churches um, when I was at college and before I had a job. And uh, if you go to uh, most Baptist churches in that period, I think it's changing, you, you would almost certainly find somewhere a rogues gallery. And what would they be pictures of? The ministers, all the past ministers. I'm not sure whether it's a reminder it's a good thing that they were dead or a good thing that they've left. But, but there they are, the, 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 the row of ministers. And consciously or subconsciously, there was this reinforcement that the, the ministry of the church was the same as the ministry of the minister. Everybody else was in some kind of supporting role while they did the real deal. And so we honoured them by putting their pictures up everywhere. When Jesus came, he invited everyone to play. Isn't that brilliant? He invited everyone to play. I love the story. They're up on a hillside. The crowds are getting restless because that's what crowds do. They're getting hungry. And they come to Jesus and say, we've got to feed the crowds. And what does Jesus say? What's his response to those disciples? What does he say? You, you do it. I mean, it's such a nod and a wink to what he's all about, isn't it? You do it. They're like, what? We, we can't do that. But he says, yeah, you do it. Because I want you to play. This is not just about what I'm doing. This is about what I believe you can do. It's not just about my ministry. It's about your ministry. It's about the way God will use you. We couldn't have got further away sometimes from the Jesus model. And so sometimes Jesus would say to those early disciples, how long will I be with you? Don't you realize you're not just spectators? You're not just there to watch? You're not just there to carry my bags? It's your job to do the real deal. And we've got three short years and I have to get my DNA into you because I'm going to go up into heaven because I'll have done my bit and then it'll be all down to you. You feed them. You do it. Everyone gets to play. The brilliant thing about it. No spectator port. No spectator port. Sport. Port. Hmm, that's a reference to Christmas, talking about joy. I'm teetotal, by the way, just in case I get misunderstood. I recall a line in the sand for me about this whole thing. It was a normal Sunday morning, just like this. The people were happy in their pews, just like they are today. I was busy, just like I am today. I did the welcome. I led the worship. I did a dedication. And then I led the intercessory prayers. I presided over communion and I preached on the priesthood of all believers. <laughs> and that's absolutely what happened 10 years ago, standing right here doing that. And I'm going, this is nuts. 
Inside, I'm screwed. Something's so messed up right now about this. But you know, it might have been nuts, but it was easy. I provide something you like. You like me for providing something you like. I like it that you like me for providing something you like. What's there not to like? And in churches, we've been playing this game for years. Until that day. And something changed in me, and I'm sorry about that, because it's been more messy since then. And we've been less sure about what all our roles are, me included, because we're on a journey. But we're capturing hold of things like this, where Jesus goes, hey, peace be with you, as the Father has sent me, now I'm sending you. This is your deal now. You're not the, you're not the, the kind of, um, the, uh, what's it, the, the pre-act, the warm-up act. You are the main deal. You're on the main stage. This is not some sideshow, as the Father has sent me, so now I'm sending you. And if you notice, what's brilliant about the way Jesus sent them is it wasn't to do stuff in the church. We're the ones focused on church. We're the ones still trapped with the special people mindset. Jesus didn't get on very well with the special places, did he? He went to the synagogue and they nearly killed him. He went to the temple and he turned over all the tables. It wasn't going very well for Jesus in special places. What he was communicating was that the ordinary people like you and me are to go not just to the special places, but to go everywhere. And what happened? They didn't change the church, but they changed the world. How cool is that? I've given up changing the church. Does my head in, honest. I mean, I love you guys loads, but trying to change church is really hard work, isn't it? Do you know? For all of us. But hey, imagine changing the world. And they tried to make sense of this truth that Jesus was giving to them. No more special people, no more special places. Bring together. We come to today's reading. You probably wondered whether I'd ever get there. You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. Priesthood. Priests, what do priests do? They help bring people into the presence of God. Priests are a gateway between the person and God himself. A priest makes the connections, makes it possible. A priest helps people touch, see, feel, introduces them. We do that. Why? Because we are carriers of his presence. Wherever you go, you are a priest because you help people. You create the opportunity for people to connect with God. At first, through you maybe, but they're going to connect with him through Jesus ultimately, obviously, in case I'm misunderstood. No special people. It's you. It's you. We had a conversation in our um, Oikos missional community a couple of weeks ago and uh, we did soap together, just open up the Bible and allow God to speak to us. We're chatting away, we talk about salt and someone said about salt, the thing about salt, um, we're looking at the passage, you are the salt of the earth. Uh, something about salt is that in that context it was incredibly valuable because it, it just preserved, so it just without it, it, the whole thing would fall apart. Salt was incredibly valuable. I remember that moment in that evening going, wow, imagine the difference if we really believed how valuable we are where God has placed us. You are super valuable where you are. We don't believe the half sometimes, I think. You are so valuable to this world. You are so valuable to your neighborhood, to your street, to your workplace, to your whatever it is. We talk sometimes, don't we, about being little Jesuses. What an incredible privilege it is. To be little Jesus is to be presence carriers where he's placed us. 
This is a bit childish, isn't it, maybe? Or at least childlike. What would Jesus do? It's the Sunday school question. But this is one of those truths. That if we uncovered it and radically reapplied it to our lives, what a sense of reformation would take place among us. What would Jesus do if he joined your family? What would Jesus do if he was in your workplace tomorrow? What would Jesus do if he lived in your street? What would Jesus do wherever you are? I'm going to press the pause button for a moment. I want you to think about somewhere where you already are. Maybe a neighborhood or a network. So a group of people that get joined together for a specific task like work or a neighborhood because you live together or a set of relationships like a family, uh, a network. Think of one of those where you are already. What would Jesus do if he was in that group, in that network, in that set of relationships? What would Jesus do? Turn to the person next to you. Share what that network was that you were thinking about and just begin to press in to what Jesus might do if he was in it. Go. Okay, switch it over. If you've done all the talking, shut up now and let someone else have a go. Okay, pause it there just for a moment. Uh, I love these verses in, um, in, in Peter. They're, they're so rich. I'm going to come back to that conversation in just a sec. Living stones built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. Don't miss that. Built into a spiritual oikos. A spiritual set of relationships that enable you to be a better priest. A community of priests. A community that makes the presence of Jesus real to people. Tangible to people. A community that enables other people who can't yet see him, touch him, feel him, to begin to see, touch and feel him. When Jesus came, he launched families on mission. And he appointed 12 that they might be with him and then that he might send them out. Here we go. Somewhere. Let's try this one. And at the end of his life, he talked about the Passover and says, I I eagerly desire to eat this meal with you. Who do you spend Passover with? It's like Thanksgiving. Who do you spend Thanksgiving with? Your your, your key people, the people in your network, your family, those that you share with, that live with, relate to, journey with. And there's this amazing picture Having done away with all special people and special places, the Bible paints this vision that Jesus inaugurated of communities springing up that embody the presence of Jesus wherever they are. So what would Jesus do? Who can you do it with? Whatever that was that you were talking about a moment ago, about what Jesus would do, you've already made the link, haven't you? That's what we should be doing. So whatever we said, oh, what are, if Jesus was in our street, he would, that, 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 that's us. If Jesus was in my workplace, that, 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 that's me. 
If Jesus was, that's me, that's... But who do we do it with? Because when Jesus set off on his mission, he gathered a group of people around him and he made those people family and he said, let's go, let's be. So who are the other people that you need to be drawing around you as you go about the mission that God is laying on your heart, as you seek to be Jesus where he has placed you? Because, and it's the beautiful truth of Christmas, when Jesus came, he didn't come to a special place, but he went right into the middle of where ordinary people live their daily lives. Eugene Peterson put it beautifully like this. He moved right into the neighborhood. Right into the neighborhood. He didn't get on very well, Jesus, with special people or special places. But he released an army of ordinary people to make every place totally transformed by the eugenics of his presence. I mean, how special was that manger? Let's be fair. You know, what, was the, what would you give to have gone into that stable? You know, nothing special about it, but actually everything was special about it. You with me? Can you imagine the tangible presence of God in that space after hundreds, thousands, and goodness knows in eternity how long God has waited. Suddenly, his own son is given flesh and blood and he's there. I mean, what a moment. You could bang feel the presence of God just as you walk through the door. That's the reality of God's presence in our midst. It's pretty cool, really, don't you think? Claire's going to help us respond. Let's uh, stop for a moment and just ask the question, what is God saying to me right now? So much in that sermon. But Lord, we're just asking right now that you speak to us, that you highlight uh, what you're saying to us. There are so many ways that we could respond, but we want to hear your voice. We want to know what you're saying to us. So Lord, just in this moment, speak clearly. Open our ears. And you might need to write that down because after coffee it will be gone. Let's just pause again in the silence. What is God saying to you right now? And let's ask God another question. What is God saying to you right now about your neighborhood or network that you were just talking about? What is God saying to you about uh, what you should do, how you should be, who you should gather around you? Ask God that question too. As God has prompted you right now, I'm going to ask that when you've heard his voice, when you know what he's asking, I'm going to ask that you stand as a way of saying, God, I've heard you and I'm committing myself before you to have a go at that this week, to join in, to play my part, to see where you're at work and come and join the party. So when you've heard God speak, will you just stand? Lord, those of us standing here are saying yes to what you're asking of us to do. I'm praying that you equip right now those standing here, that you equip them with the power of heaven, with the Holy Spirit. And for those of us not standing yet, we ask that you really clearly speak to us as we worship together now, as we come to communion. Help us know how to respond to what we've heard today. May we hear your voice. And Lord, before the cross... We lay down any feelings we have of not being adequate, of I'm not good enough to play my part. These things can stop us. You say to us today, I've made you just the way you are. I've equipped you and I'm asking you to rely on me as you go into this world, as you go to that neighborhood, as you go to that network that I've placed around you. Trust me. 
Even in your weakness, I am strong, Jesus says. And so, Lord, we come to your cross and we lay down our inadequacy and we pick up the power of heaven, the inheritance that we have as sons and daughters of the living king that says we are a royal priesthood, that we are enough, that you died for me so that I could be free and so that I could be filled with the power of the spirit so that I can go in your name. Why doesn't everybody stand? And we're going to sing uh, When I Survey as we come to the cross. And maybe you do just need to lay some things at the foot of the cross as we're singing so that you can take up the inheritance God has got for you.